14, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33 is where we will be at this evening. Luke chapter 14, 25 through 33, and this is kind of a different setup for us. Normally I'm used to spending just one day with a church, but to have two days with the church, this is great. They should do this. We should do this type of thing more often, I think. So this is good. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. I really appreciated the songs that were picked and sung tonight, this emphasis of Christ and every knee shall bow, facing a task unfinished. And that third verse of facing a task unfinished, I don't know if you really caught, if you were focused or not, maybe you were you know, still thinking about work a little bit or some other things that are going on in your life, but those words are, are really powerful thoughts. To think about that, we as the church today are taking a torch that has been lit by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by, the, by his death and resurrection. It was carried by the early church and many died for their faith died for following Jesus, and we have that same torch, right? And we're taking it now still further into the world, to the people of Germany, to the people here in Altoona. And there's the phrase in there, with the same fiery ambition, and sometimes I wonder, and I look into my own heart, if I really do have that same fiery ambition. If I'm really willing to have the same commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ for serving my Lord and Savior as many in the early church did, willing to lay their lives down and sacrifice it for the glory of their Savior. And this passage here in Luke chapter 14 verses 25 through 33 is a great challenge to me and I trust to all of us here as we observe and we see there are some costs to being a disciple of Christ that we need to consider and we need to think through. So let's read, I'll follow along as I read these verses in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and he said to him, this is Jesus, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple." And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I'm going to scoot my mic down so I don't keep blowing you out here. Verse 28, For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first to consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how clear it is to us what your will is and what you expect from us. Lord, you do not hide yourself, nor do you lie or deceive. You are completely and utterly honest and faithful. And Lord, we praise you and we thank you for that. Now, Lord, as we grapple with this text, as we grapple with the teachings of your Son, I just pray that you'd help us to understand it and apply it to our lives today. Help us to have courage to live for you in this world. And we praise you and we pray in your son's name. Amen. Before coming back on furlough, 
excitement in our family was building to see grandma and grandpa again, primarily in our two younger, in our two young boys, Jude and Isaiah, five and three. And every, and not every day, but a couple times a week, it was getting to the point where we were calling grandma and grandpa and just talking about all the things that we were going to do when we get back to the States, when we see them again. And grandpa and grandma, I think, were also getting very excited because they started throwing out all these ideas of activities that they were going to do. And they say, Judah, when you get here, we're going we're gonna to play soccer. We're going to go to the zoo. We're going to, and then grandpa looks out in his backyard and he just put in a new fence and he had all this leftover lumber from his old fence he said we're gonna we're gonna build a clubhouse when you get here isn't that exciting and Judah was very excited about that idea he's like oh yeah a clubhouse and they talked about it some more and they even determined they were going to paint it green when we arrived and this was like okay we got this plan we're going to make a green clubhouse well I think grandpa forgot about it but when we arrived Judah did not forget about that and when we got off the plane, one of the first things that Judah really started when we started talking with Grandpa and brought up was, Hey, Grandpa, are we going to go build that clubhouse now? And at that point, it was like, okay, we were still getting through jet lag. It was a little hot. And we said, okay, maybe tomorrow we'll start on this clubhouse. And Judah wakes up the next morning and comes down the stairs and sees Grandpa and says, Hey, Grandpa, are we going to build that clubhouse today? And we look outside, it's 90 degrees. And oh, okay, we'll start on it. And after two weeks... We had the floor done of the clubhouse. And I was ready to quit. I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't really want to, honestly, I didn't want to help to begin with. This wasn't my project, right? This was Grandpa and Judah's project, but I was helping too. And, and, uh, and, and Grandpa ended up hurting his thumb, so I had to do a little bit more of the effort in making this clubhouse. And, and after three weeks, we finally finished the clubhouse. But through that whole process, my mind, and I think also Grandpa, like at some point, had to have been thinking, what in the world did I, why did I promise this? <laughs> why did I even mention that I have lumber? Why did I even give the idea to my, my grandson, my persistent grandson, to build this clubhouse? It was, you know, he never, he didn't before, I think he didn't sit down and think through the costs here, right? What is this actually going to require? What is the time commitment? What is this, am I really going to be able to finish this task? And thankfully, we can say now we finished this task. We got that clubhouse built, and we'll go play with it again in a couple weeks, and the boys are excited about that. But this idea of stopping first before we jump into a project or an endeavor uh, without considering costs, without thinking things through, is what Jesus is trying to help the people here to understand and see. See, Jesus was a very popular teacher. People were running to him. They were excited about who he was, the miracles he was performing, the food he was providing. And many people were projecting him to be their political savior, the overthrower of Rome. And, and people were excited about Jesus. They wanted to follow him. But Jesus knew what was going on with the Pharisees and Sadducees. He knew of their plotting he knew that he was going to have to die. And he understood what the cost would also be for those who really wanted to be his followers and to be his disciples. And he presents two illustrations here to get the people to think. Slow down, people. Don't, don't be like a, a builder who sits out to build a tower without first considering the costs here. Don't get halfway through the project and then stop and not being able to finish and then just have a monument, a testimony to, 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 to be a mock, the mockery in society. Don't be that person. 
Don't be that fool. Don't be like a king who sees an, 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 an army coming against him and just sends his armies out without thinking about things. Can you really defeat an army twice your size? Or maybe you should consider a peace treaty. Slow down here. Pump the brakes. Let's consider the costs. Let's really think things through. I think there are a lot of people who come to church on Sundays, a lot of people who name and bear, who name themselves, call themselves a disciple of a Christ, a follower of Christ, but haven't really stopped and really thought and considered what it actually could entail from them, what it does entail, what those costs are. I think there are many people who grow up in church who have not really stopped to consider, okay, my parents are saved, my grandparents are saved, they're all Christians, I'm a Christian too, but they haven't really stopped to really notice, to really observe, okay, what does this mean then? And this is something we all need to take time and think through and consider. Are we a disciple of Christ? Are you a disciple of Christ? And as I get into this, as we get into this text, I want to be very clear at the onset, at the beginning, salvation is by grace alone. We bring nothing to the table. There's no work that we can do to merit salvation. But yet, if we are saved by grace and we are kept by grace and we notice and we behold the love of God, should not we be moved by grace to follow Christ and to give costs and to live for him? And what are those costs? What are the necessary costs a disciple must pay? And we see here there are three costs in this passage. The first is in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Notice here there are seven objects which Christ says that we are to hate. And first, the first six objects all deal with some of our closest and dearest loves, our family members. He lists a father, a mother, wife, spouse, children, brothers, and sisters. And as we look at this list, I think we need to conclude and must conclude the first commodity, the first cost of being a disciple of Christ, the first thing we should entrust over to the Lord is our families. What does it mean to hate? And maybe you're like me and you read these verses and you kind of are shocked. <laughs> hate? Really, Jesus? Do you, is that really the word you'd like to use here? You, Jesus, who spoke of loving your neighbors, praying for those who persecute you, now turn and say, hate my mom, my wife, my children? What does it mean to hate? To hate is to have a strong and passionate dislike towards something or for something. The result of hate normally plays itself out that there's no desire to be around said object or person when hate is there. And when we look at this word and when we try to, to translate it and work through it, there's unfortunately no real way for, for us to, to translate it to soften the blow. It's a very strong word. So my question is then, how am I to hate my wife? Why, what would this look like to hate my boys, my children? How am I to obey this standard to be a disciple of Christ? 
This is a tough question. I think what is important for us to remember when we deal with difficult passages of Scripture like this one is we make sure whatever the application is that we're striving for, it does not contradict other clear teachings of Scripture. And when you look, for instance, in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, chapter 6, we see clear commands how a family should treat one another. Husbands, love your wives sacrificially as Christ loved the church. So whatever this means to hate my wife, it cannot contradict me giving of myself for my wife on a continual basis. To love my wife. Same thing for wives towards their husbands, children, teenagers. You probably said that, yes, I can hate my mom and dad. I don't have to obey them anymore, right? I can stay out late. I don't have to take out the garbage. Ah. No, that's not the case. And the book of Ephesians says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, right? For this is right. And parents, you can't just say, okay, kids, go take care of yourselves. We still have to care for our children. We still have to nurture them and train them up in the, in the, in the, in the teachings of the Lord. So whatever it means, or whatever application we draw from hating our, our family members, we can't go against these other clear th- commands that we are to be fulfilling and living out as we follow Christ. So then, what does it mean to hate again? Those are what it does not mean. We can't go against other scriptures, so what does it mean to hate? I think what is helpful here is when you look at a parallel passage that you find, for instance, in Matthew 10, 37, where Jesus is, where Matthew records the same conversation, but speaks of the love more in the realms of comparisons. In Matthew 10, 37, Matthew records this as, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's a more. And we see here that this hate, then, should speak more to our love for Christ and for God and less towards our family members. Let me clarify what I'm saying there. Is that our love for Christ should be so so more supreme, so much greater that when you compare it to the love of your family that you have for your family, the family it appears is that you hate them. There should be such a drastic difference between the two that one is seen as hate And one is seen as great affection and love. And the hate here is driving us upward to our love for God, for our love for Christ, and is pushing us for us not to pursue our families as an end, but to pursue our relationship with Christ as being far more important than the relationships that we have with our families. It's like... I grew up in Colorado, and one of the things that I really loved to do is we would go camping often, and we would have a campfire. And my dad taught me that the best way to you know, cook things on a campfire is not to have the fire remain big, but to let the fire die down, and then you have the hot coals. And then you put your food out there, your meat, your fish, your, your marshmallows, and you roast them over those really hot coals. And those hot coals are beautiful. They're pink and oranges and reds, and they're bright, and they're piping hot. There, there's a lot of heat there. But if you take that fire and you place it in a context of a bright, sunny, mid-afternoon day, with the sun shining, what do those coals look like? How do they appear? It's white ash. 
Beauty is gone. There might be a glimmer here and there, but the beauty when it is in the darkness compared to the light and the greater light is taken away. And that is how it is pictured, how we, I think we should help us understand how we should pursue Christ and have our love for Christ be that much greater to when it shines upon our love for our families, it's not as strong. What is, I think, a very helpful thing, though, to remember in this is to not forget that when you pursue Christ and you pursue your love for him as a husband, as a wife, as a child, that if you pursue Christ, it will actually, he'll actually teach you how to properly love your wife better. And you'll actually love your children in a better way, in a more accurate way. Notice in those passages, and remember just in your mind, those passages in Ephesians, husbands love your wives as Christ. There's the comparison, as Christ, as he loved the church, how he loves us. He's the standard. So if we pursue knowing him and how he loves us, then in turn we will know more appropriately how to generate or how to show affection towards our wives to love her. For kids, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And we can't forget that part. Don't obey your parents because your parents, just because they're the boss, which is true. You should do that anyways. I, I tell my boys, you should still obey me because I'm the boss. But there's even a far greater authority that you should have in your life. You obey your parents because it pleases God. And you do it out of love for Him in service to him. This is a great, I think this is a, a, a call for us as, as believers to help us realize that discipleship and, and missions does not really begin on missions trips, but it begins in our families and how we treat one another and how we pursue our love for Christ together as units, as a family. Discipleship begins not on the mission field, but in our homes, around dinner tables and conversations in that way. But I'd like to make and think for an application here towards missions. Because I know many missionaries or many prospective missionaries who are afraid to leave home because of what mom and dad, grandma and grandpa might think. Now I think there's... there's, there's there's a struggle there. I understand there's a love there that needs to be there. There's a fostering there. But just imagine, let me say it this way. As, a, as someone sitting in church observing missionaries give testimonies, I would always kind of think to myself, wow, look at that man up there. Look at that family leaving their country to serve the Lord on a foreign field, leaving everything behind. What great faith. But as I was raising support and as we moved to Germany, I've learned something. I've gained a perspective on the role of a mom and dad and a grandma and grandpa in that whole process. Of focusing and training up a child, nurturing, having them focus upon Christ, teaching them the gospel, getting them involved in church. You are pouring your life into your children. Why? Because you want them to know Christ. And if we want them to know Christ and we want them to pursue Christ, wouldn't we, shouldn't we be encouraging them to pursue the will of God for their lives? And not to be holding them back and discouraging them from service. It's great faith to be the missionary that leaves, but it's also a great faith to be the mom, the grandma, the father that says, go. 
You belong to the Lord. I love him more than you, believe it or not, and I am pleased that he's willing to use you. Go. That's a, that's a tough thing to do. But if we dare call ourselves disciples of Christ, this is, a, this is what we need to give over to the Lord. It is our families. It's our love for them. And out of our love for Christ, we say, Christ, we know you can take care of them. Use them for your honor and glory. The first commodity that we are to give over to the Lord is, is our families. The second one we find in verse 27. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And here we get a, kind of an explanation of the seventh object of hate. We had the first six, we're all dealing with families, but let's not forget the last one in verse 26. And he says, and his own life also we need to hate. He cannot be my disciple. And then in verse 27, he just kind of gives some more teeth to what it means to hate yourself. What does this look like? And he presents some, some verbs there for us to consider, to bear a cross, to come after him, to follow after him is the picture that we see of what denying yourself looks like, of hating yourself and what that looks like. So we see here that the second commodity that we, which we must entrust to the Lord is first was our families, the second is ourselves, or may I say it, our bodies. Our bodies. Let's look at these verbs here in a little bit here for verse 27. What does it mean to come after and follow? I think it's kind of self-explanatory, but there's a lot of things that go into that. You notice kids at, the, at grade school going from class to class. They're all in a line following the teacher. And they're all following her to their next, their next pass. Now, if they're being good followers, they're staying in line. They're keeping their spot. They're keeping their eyes focused upon the leader. And they're going wherever she goes. They're going at her pace. They're not getting ahead of her. They're not going beside her and saying, hey, let's go over here, let's go over there. That's not following. Their will is completely submitted to the teacher's will. They will go wherever she goes, wherever she leads them. And that's the idea, I think, of what needs, that's the picture that we have as well. If we're followers of Christ, we step behind Christ. We are following him at his pace. We're going to where he's leading us. So where is he leading us? Well, what are we bringing along? We're bringing a cross. What does this imply? Well, many of you are no doubt familiar with what a cross represents. Christ bore a cross. He died upon a cross. It's the, it's the choice instrument of torture at the Rome, of the Roman Empire at that period of time. But what maybe you haven't realized is that when someone was carrying a cross, they had to carry their cross beforehand. And just think through that a little bit. If you were a, 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 a watcher of someone carrying a cross, what would be some things that would be going through your mind? How would you view that person? If you saw Jesus walking before you with a cross on his back, how would you see him? Yeah, he may be alive, he might be breathing, but he, he is he's been sentenced, he's dead. His life is gone. He's a dead person walking. And that's what Jesus is essentially saying here. If you're bearing a cross, you have put yourself to death. You may be alive, you may be breathing, but your life is forfeit. The sentence has already been given to you. 
and you're willing to, you will be enduring mocking, you'll be enduring persecutions until the point when you actually die. Jesus is actually calling us to follow him to death. Jesus is saying, I'm, gonna, I'm dying for you. I gave my life for you. Were you? Will you give your life for me? Will you follow me and join me in death to self? I think it's interesting how the original disciples understood this. It's interesting when you look in church history that 10 of the original 12 disciples endured a martyr's death. You think of Peter who was crucified upside down after witnessing the crucifixion of his own wife. Why? Because he believed in Jesus. He was a follower of him. Think of Bartholomew, disciple and missionary to Armenia, who was recorded that he was beaten with rods, boiled, skinned alive, crucified, and then beheaded for preaching the gospel. How did they understand this bearing a cross? It was a complete sacrifice of their body, of their talents, of their person to their Savior. And I think to water down the demand to bear your cross to any level short of being willing to die a martyr's death for the cause of Christ is to fall short of this call of discipleship. Christ is calling for us to forfeit our lives to his service. Paul aptly calls this in Romans 12, 1 and 2, we are to be living sacrifices. We must follow him if we desire to be disciples. That means that we're putting our wills, we're submitting them to God's will for our lives. What does this look like? Well, what is the one question, teenagers and college students especially, that you get asked all the time, kids? What do you want to be when you grow up, right? What are your plans? What are your goals? I wanted to be a music teacher for many, many years. My brother wanted to be a box collector at Sam's. We all have a bar we're trying to meet, right? And now it's good to have plans. It's good to have goals. It's good to have a direction that you're going. But the question that we must consider, is this our plan and our goal? And are we holding on to it? This is what I want for my life. This is what I want to do. Or have we said, have we given it over to Christ and say, God, I'm a disciple. I'm a follower of you. As a young person, lead me. I have plans. I have ideas. Is this what you want for me? Or is this what I want for me? We're always needing to be following the Lord and giving him even our futures of what that may look like. I fear there are many young men who do not go into the ministry who the Lord may desire to call there because they are not willing to open up their hearts to the possibility. And there are pastors, there are churches who need pastors. We are in the great need of missionaries still to this day. What could God have for you if you take that step and say, God, what do you want with me? I give you my life. Lead me. And that's something for all of us to really still consider and think, even though we may be further along in life. But even that second, there's that spiritual submission, this dying to self, this will. But I think there's also that call for that physical sacrifice that we need to be ready for. 
and it's not necessarily be ready for, but it's make the decision now that that's what we're going to do. I looked just at the culture of what's going around right now. Here in America, we have been blessed, and I mean this sincerely. We've been able to worship the Lord freely. We have not paced, faced persecution. I would not say that. We, there are regions in the world where people will die for being a Christian, where they'll be hunted down, where they'll be, they'll be taken out to the streets and beaten like they were in the early church. There are places in the world where that is so. That is not so here in America. But when I look out and I look into the culture and I see people getting angry to the point where they're inflicting violence on people over political beliefs, political differences, and I look at what I believe here in the Bible, and I say, okay, the Bible says that Christ alone saves. And that's offensive. How much more offensive that is to some of my other political holdings that that may hold and believe, that I may believe. And when I see so much anger towards those things, how much more anger will it be when they figure out, maybe not figure out, when they realize what we are and what we believe as a church? The call is not to lay down your life if it is required. The call is to give your life fully and completely over to the Lord that even if it means I'm going to die for this, I will do it. And my question for me and for us is do we really believe that? Do we believe this enough that this is this? Do I really believe this? <laughs> To that point, am I to the point where I'm going to lay down my life for Christ? I pray that we would be ready. Are we willing to pay this cost? Are we willing to suffer real persecution? If not, then we cannot call ourselves a disciple. And if you're here today and you say, you know, I don't, that's not me, I don't really believe this stuff, I challenge you to search your heart. And I'll see, it'll show you here in a moment that Christ died for you. And he loves you. He gave his life for you. And this should be a desire that we have as believers. The third cost that we are to give up, we find at the end in verse 33. And Jesus says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And you might be like me and you see the word, okay, all. Well, you just mentioned myself and my family. What's left? <laughs> what more do you require? I think Jesus here uses that word all just to help us kind of, he's not being specific here, but just to kind of fill in everything else. Everything, all the things that we have here. And I think the third cost that we need to be willing to entrust to the Lord is our earthly treasures. First is our family. Second is our bodies. And third is our earthly treasures. What does it mean to forsake when it says to forsake all? Forsake means to completely leave the situation. The psalmist would cry out to the Lord, don't leave us or forsake us. Don't take your presence away from us. Stay here. And Jesus is saying that we need to forsake all of our things and follow him. What is he calling us to do? Well, in our culture today and society today, how do we evaluate success a lot of times in people's lives? Well, as we're driving down the road, as we engage with people, who's the successful person? Well, it's a person who has a nice house, has a lot of money, has a nice car, 
has a good job. Those are the things that we kind of tick in our minds as Americans, as human beings. Like, wait, yep, he's got that, got that, got that, got that. Successful person. Ding, ding, ding. And we tie all these successful things to the things that we saw, the, the standards of success to things of this world. Materialism. And Jesus says that this is not how it should be as a Christian. Success and your evaluation success needs to change. It's not about your job, per se. It's not about the money you make. It's not about the toys that you're able to buy, the house that you live in. It's about your love for me, your walk with me, and your pursuit of my will for your life. What does it look like to forsake all? Well, I think we get a good illustration of this in Luke chapter 5. When Jesus is teaching to the multitudes there in Luke chapter 5, and he comes down to the sea, and Peter's there fishing and cleaning. I think, I think I remember he's cleaning up his, his, his work from the previous night. And in order to be a, a better teacher, to be more effective, he asks Peter, hey, can we go out just a little ways so I can teach the people? And Peter agrees and takes him out into a boat, in his boat, and, and he teaches, and Peter's sitting there in the boat listening to him. And after he finishes teaching, he says, Peter, let's go out a little bit further and let's, let's do some fishing. And Peter, you know, hymns and haws, reluctantly agrees and they go out further and they throw their, fi- their nets into the water and they catch a multitude of fish. So many fish that Peter cannot haul in the load by himself. He calls in his friends, excuse me, James and John says, hey boys, get your boats over here. Let's pull in these fish and bring them into shore. And they all work together and they pull in the fish. And then Peter has a moment on the shore. After hearing the teachings of Jesus from the boat, after seeing the miracle of the catching of the fish, he has a realization that Jesus, he's more than just a good teacher. If he's able to do these things, surely he can look into my soul and he can see that I am a sinner. And he pleads out of fear to Christ, leave me. I am not worthy for you to be in my presence. Go away. And how does Jesus respond? Does he leave? (laughs) No, he pursues Peter. He asks some questions and invites him. He says, Peter, fear not. From henceforth thou shalt catch men. He lays out this invitation to change his vocation, as it were, from fisherman to man-fisher. What will you do, Peter? Will you follow me? Will you forsake all? He places before him a, a higher call for life. And how does he respond? How does he, Peter, James, and John respond? Luke 5.11. And when they had brought their ships to land, Luke 5.11, they forsook all and followed him. They changed their perspective. They changed their focus. And they were consumed with following Christ. Being a disciple of Christ is a higher call than living the American dream. Instead of pursuing houses and boats and jobs, we are called to be pursuing souls and eternity and service for Christ. And the question that we need to ask ourselves often is, are are our hearts starting to get tied down with this world and the things that are around? 
One way to maybe evaluate this is to look at your calendars. <laughs> What's at the center of your calendar? What do you schedule everything else around? What do you put on your calendar first? I fear a lot of families, this is so in Germany, so I assume also here in America, that they put the, the football schedule up first on their calendars. Their, their kids' little league schedule first on their calendars, and then they fill in the sides with church activities, and, and all of a sudden, they have no time to do the things that are really important in the world. I think of our own daily schedules that we have personally. What do we start with in our days? How do we, how do we what's our routine look like? What's at the center here? Things, activities, the world, or is it our walk with Christ? That is the most important. We evaluate our budgets as maybe another way. How are we spending our money? Where is that going? So for some, when we look at these things and we evaluate these things and forsaking all, it could be that some of you here, someone may have a response very similar to Peter's where they realize, I need to change my occupation. I'm doing the wrong thing here. I know many missionaries and pastors who were once lucratively employed as real estate agents, insurance agents, doctors, who when they scrappled with the idea of being a disciple, realized that they needed to give everything in this regard. Christ was calling them to forsake all those things in that way, to change their occupation out of their vocation for Christ and the disciple of Christ. I understand, though, that God does not work in every person in that way. But we still need to be challenged in our daily and personal lives of how we are spending our money and how we are scheduling our time. It's not about the things and activities. We need to forsake all and evaluate our success in life by our obedience to Christ. So these are the three costs that a disciple must be willing to pay. If we are not willing to give these, then we dare not call ourselves a disciple of Christ, in the words of Jesus. We cannot be a disciple our families, our bodies, and our treasures. When we come here and as we think through of what that may look like overall, I think there's no better example of a disciple of Christ than the missionary David Livingston, a great man of God, a doctor in England, who gave his life, gave, oh, gave up his pursuit of life over to being a missionary, a pioneer missionary to Africa giving up his warm English bed for the hard African terrain and ground. As he was pursuing a mission's life, a life of a missionary in Africa, he actually had other pastors and other people discourage him from going. Don't give your life to such a foolhardy event. You'll die over there. The cost in their minds was too great. And it's interesting when David Livingston is asked about his costs and evaluating his supposed costs of what he gave for his missionary life for Christ, this is how he responds. He said this, People talk of the sacrifices that I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay. All of these are nothing. All these supposed sacrifices are nothing 
When compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us, he then he concludes, I never, never made a sacrifice. What is interesting to me when he, in this quote, as he speaks of sacrifice, he doesn't speak of sacrifices, but he speaks of a debt which he owes. A debt. What type of debt is this? Did he feel like he needed to, to, to justify himself, to give his life as like an act of penitence to the Lord so that he could be saved? No. It was an understanding, again, of what Christ had done for him on the cross and the price and the cost of Christ and his blood on the cross for him as a sinner. He understood who he was, his plight in life, where he was headed. And then he saw the cross. He saw the sacrifice made on his account and the salvation that the Lord provided to him. And he said, how precious is this that has been paid on my account? Why? How in the world can I pay that back? My life has been changed. I have been given new life. I have been forgiven of my sins. How do I say thank you? And this drive of thankfulness a desire to give back a small part debt owing to his God is what motivated him to give his life for Christ in this way. So I challenge us here today to consider the cross as a closing. That we would consider what Christ has done for us personally, for you personally. That he willingly came to this earth that he suffered the painful death of the cross, bearing your sin upon him on the tree. And he died for you. Taking the punishment of your sin upon him. That was out of grace. That was out of mercy. That was out of love. How do you respond to such a sacrifice? A disciple turns and says, here's my life. Lord, use me. I give you my hands. I give you my feet. I give you my heart. I will go. We dare not turn away from this cross indifferent. I challenge you, if you're here today and you do not know Christ as your Savior, if you've never personally placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the first step to being a disciple is to acknowledge that you are a sinner that you need Christ, and that you trust in Him and Him alone for your salvation. That is the very first step. And if you have not done that here today, I challenge you, consider what Christ has done. You may have grown up here in this church your entire life. You may be a Bible college student. You may be a grandma and grandpa. You may be the best person in the world. But if you've never trusted Christ then you are not a disciple. Take this first step tonight and be saved and be forgiven of your sins and allow that first step to turn to many, many more after that. For the rest of us, if you're here today and you know you're a disciple, what is God doing in your heart tonight? What's the thing that you need to change to be a better follower of him? In light of the cross, what is he calling you to do? Let's pray. Father, as we have already sung, we are bearing a torch that has been carried by many generations before us. Lord, as that song ended, it was a prayer that you would give us courage 
and that we'd be faithful for the calling that you have called us to do, to go to the world, to finish this task which is unfinished. Lord, we need you. We need your spirit. We need to have a love for your son. And we need to have an understanding of who you are as our God and Savior. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to give us courage to be followers of you. That we would recognize areas that we are holding on to our lives where we're being selfish and self-centered and to turn them over to you. And Lord, I pray that if there is one here today who does not know you, that your spirit would be at work in their hearts and that they would trust you tonight as their Savior. We love you and we praise you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.